Matthew chapter 11. We're beginning a, a new series this morning. Over the last couple of years, we've got through the first 10 chapters of Matthew. With breaks, I should add. It hasn't taken us two years to do 10 chapters. And this term, we're going to pick up and, and tackle the next section. So Matthew 11, and we're going to read from verse 1. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church. Matthew 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played for the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. But John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. My guess is most people in the the room this morning would call themselves Christians. You would say you've been following Jesus, you put your trust in the gospel. You believe he died, he rose again. And that eternal life awaits. So let me ask you a question. How sure are you? How sure are you? Are there ever moments that you just begin to doubt? Where it just seems unlikely that what you've been taught in the Bible is true? Are there moments where you think about some of the Bible's stories Noah and his ark, David fell in Goliath, and begin to think, really? At the moments you worry that perhaps there isn't eternal life, that perhaps that the whole thing, well, might not add up. Are there moments you worry that Jesus isn't the Son of God? Are there moments you worry that he hasn't actually forgiven you, that heaven isn't actually open, that you haven't actually begun eternal life? Other times, in other words, that you doubt. Now, the passage we've just read focuses on one of the, the, the greatest men in the Bible, 
after Jesus, John the Baptist. And strikingly, we meet John the Baptist for the second time in Matthew's Gospel. That The first time we met him, he was the great preacher. He was the herald. We'll come back to this. But he was the one announcing that Jesus, God in the flesh, was about to come. He was fearless. Uh, the religious authorities opposed him, and he, he looked them in the eye and said, you brood of vipers. So, so even though the whole church of the day, as it were, stood against him, John was so certain of his mission that he was willing to look at the established church and say, you've got it wrong and I am right. Jesus is the Christ. John had given his life to this mission. He lived in the wilderness, you might remember. He ate locusts and honey. He dressed uh, as Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. And then we meet him in chapter 11. And what is he doing? He's doubting. Verse 2, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's whole ministry had been about announcing that Jesus is the one to come. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. And suddenly when he comes back on the scene, he's not sure. This is such a surprise to to, to people in the early church, that, that for the first sort of four or five hundred years of the church, when, when you read the, the comments on, the, on this passage, that they try and just get round it. So, so they say, well, it's not that John doubted, it's, it's the disciples. So he went through this whole charade because his disciples, John's followers, weren't sure. So John sent them to find out from Jesus. But I think the text is perfectly clear, isn't it? He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one to come? The question is John's. John suddenly is doubting. I put on the, on the service sheet the, the sermon title, Do Disciples Doubt? Probably writing sermon titles is you have to write them before you write the sermon. Uh, the, the question should be immediately obvious. Yes, at times, real disciples, real born again, going to heaven, forgiven forever Christians, doubt. That may not have happened to you, and it may never happen. Okay, it's not a necessity. It'd be wonderful to go through doubt never, sorry, go through life never doubting. But many of us will find that at some point in our life, we stand where John stands in Matthew 11 and just have questions. Do disciples doubt? Yes, they do. And so really a, a better question is why? In fact, we're going to ask two questions this morning. Why do disciples doubt? And then what should doubting disciples do? That's not enough D's for you. Why do disciples doubt? And what should doubting disciples do? The great danger, of course, is that when we do begin to fear that we're not trusting fully or our faith isn't strong or that, that we keep those doubts to ourselves, we're, we're worried, so we don't want to admit to, to other people that, that we've got doubts. And so we stew on them and they get all the greater. Or we don't want to uh, admit to, to God that we have doubts perhaps even at the deepest level, we don't want to admit to ourselves at times that we have doubt. And so we suppress it, ignore it, never address it. And we miss the good news of Matthew 11. So let's dive in and ask, why, why do disciples doubt? Now, this isn't going to be comprehensive. We're looking at one case study, if you like, with John the Baptist. There are all sorts of reasons why people might doubt. It might be that you're going through a particularly rough time. It might be there are medical problems in your life that are just throwing you off balance. It might be that there's a particular sin that is clouding your vision of God. We read about that sometimes in the Psalms. If we're in 
a particular period of rebellious sin. Sometimes God withdraws the sort of sense of his presence until we repent and come back to him. It might be that God just walks us sovereignly through a a difficult period to to test and try us, as he did with Job. But but in John the Baptist's case, I think there's, there's something else going on. Three things that make John doubt. The first is it is his prison. Do you see where he is as the story begins? Verse two, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. Here's the great prophet of, of, of God. And where is he? He's chained up in Herod's dungeon. It is John's circumstances, the pressure he's under, the suffering he's going through that makes him think, is this really true? Is Jesus really God in the flesh? often the case isn't it when life gets tough when God doesn't seem to be delivering for us that's the moment that the little doubts begin to creep into our ears like little worms or a little voice on our shoulder Jesus is really God when you're in these circumstances and I think that's deepened in John the Baptist's case because of his prophecy just come back to to the first meeting with John, Matthew 3, a few chapters earlier. Matthew chapter 3, and look what John prophesied. At a time when he wasn't doubting, uh, when he was fearless in his preaching, Uh, look look how he announced Jesus is coming. Uh, In verse 3, you get his big message, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But then down, look down at verse 10, sorry, verse 11. John says this, I baptise you, talking about the crowds that have come to him, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable flame, unquenchable fire. When Jesus comes, says John the Baptist, three things will happen. He's going to be a person of great power. See that in verse 11? He is mightier than I. He's the one ultimately who's able to wield the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a person of immense power, ultimately because he's God in the flesh, announces John. And when he comes, he's going to do two things. He's going to purify his people. That's what's going on with this baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire uh, in verse 11. He's going to cleanse God's people. Uh, in John's day, and in fact through much of the Old Testament story, that the, the people who, who claimed to be God's people were, were well, often just frankly very disobedient. They wandered away rather than towards God. They disobeyed rather than obeyed. And so when, when Jesus comes, said John, he's going to pour the Holy Spirit out as a kind of cleansing fire, burning up the dross and purifying God's people. And for those who, who aren't purified, those who don't come to him for forgiveness, well, he's going to punish them, verse 12. He'll gather his wheat into the barn. So he'll take his people, the wheat there of the people. His people will collect into the barn, but the chaff, the bit of the, the grain that you don't need, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is coming to punish those who've rebelled against God. So again in verse 10, even now, says John, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Jordan, have you ever seen someone chop down a tree? And the first thing they do is they put the axe at the bottom of the tree so they know where to swing. So when they swing, the, axe will be, the, the tree will come down. John says, even now, Jesus is getting ready. He, he, he's getting ready to judge, to chop away all those who've been disobedient. And so when he ends up in prison, 
we can perhaps understand why the doubts begin to rise. Jesus is meant to be this powerful king who arrives on earth, this Messiah promised throughout the days of the Old Testament. And what happens? Well, for 30 years, he's a carpenter. And then he wanders around the, the north of Israel. And yes, there are reports of spectacular miracles, but, but it's hardly the invasion of a conquering king. There's no Archangel Gabriel and Michael on his flanks. You know, the armies, the hosts of heaven, the angels come down to, to rid the land of Israel of all those who stand against God and his purposes. Jesus looks pretty weak on the whole. Neither does he seem to, to carry out this mission of purifying God's people. Uh, there are still many around who have no concern about the things of God in John's day. It's not as if the whole nation turns back and becomes these sort of holy people that God had promised would happen. And certainly Jesus doesn't seem to punish. In fact, if anything, his enemies get stronger. Ultimately, of course, they'll crucify him. It, it seems that Jesus is failing to deliver on what John promised. He just hasn't showed up. And so he doubts. Again, similarly, we read in the Bible about Jesus as, as, as our, our saviour, our messiah. We've just sung about how Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And then we get into a battle with sin and we fail time and time again. The same sins trip us up. And we don't seem to make any progress. And so we start to think, well, is he, is he really dwelling in my heart by faith? Am I really born again? We, we hear that he's king of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That he's commanded his people to go and make disciples of all nations. And we see how slowly the gospel goes forward. It's our own context. And we begin to wonder, is he really Lord? And certainly his enemies seem to flourish. Uh, the pastor who woke up this morning in China to find that the church building had been destroyed by the government. The Christian family in Somalia whose child had been kidnapped by the Islamic militia. You can see why they begin to ask, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really king? Verse 3, are you really the one to come? Actually, there's something, I think, even deeper in John's doubt. It's not just that his circumstances of prison have thrown him off, off balance. It's not just that his prophecy, that the promises of God don't, don't seem to have come true. I think that, well, below it, he's made a fundamental mistake. And you get, it, you get at that mistake by looking at Jesus' answer to him. In verse 4, Jesus answers the disciples. These are John's disciples. And sends them back to John with a message. And you see what he says, verse 4? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of good news preached to them. What's he doing? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah. Now keep your finger in Matthew and flip back to the book of Isaiah. It's just after Psalms in the Bible. Well, in terms of big book, it's just after Psalms. It's before all the other uh, prophets. So Isaiah chapter 35 uh, page 595. Page 595. This is what Jesus quotes. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. 
You see the verses, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And then he stops, and he stops just before, well, verse 7. Oh, sorry, no, he starts at verse 5, but he doesn't quote the verse just before, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. Jesus quotes Isaiah back to John. Now, John will know full well the rest of the text of Isaiah, but Jesus just quotes the bit about him healing people. He doesn't quote the verse right next door, which is about judgment, about the Messiah bringing judgment. Now, you might notice that the bit about preaching good news to the poor isn't in Isaiah 35. That's because that's a quote from Isaiah 61. And again, Jesus does exactly the same thing. He quotes the bit about the, if you like, the the good things he'll do here, preaching good news to the poor. But right next door, the next door verse in Isaiah 61 is another verse about judgment. So Jesus sends the message back to John. Look, I'm doing all these things that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would do. And he quotes two verses, two passages, and leaves out the judgment bit that is right next door to each. Why does he do so? Let me just say for for a couple of reasons. The first is this, that that on Jesus' time scale, things are working out differently to to what the prophets expected. When you read Isaiah, it looks like that that when God comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal the sick, make the lame walk, give sight to the blind, and at the same time punish the wicked. And that's what John expected. But on Jesus' timescale, actually, those uh, two events are, in their, sort of, in their deeper sense, separated. The first coming of Jesus, he comes to heal, to save, to rescue. It's in his second coming, ultimately, that judgment will fall. But, but when you read the prophets, and this seems to be what John understands too, when you read the prophets, it's a bit like if, you know, if you've been on a walk in the mountains in the Lake District, and, and you look ahead and you think you can see the top of the hill, but when you get to the top, you realise that actually there's another peak a little bit further right. You're not quite there. Whereas if you turned and looked to the side of the mountains, you'd see the gap between the two peaks. From front on, it looks like, well, there's just one mountain. But when you look to the side, well, there's a gap between the two. When you read Isaiah, and as John understood Isaiah, and probably as John understood his own preaching in Matthew 3, he thought the Messiah would bring judgment at the same time as salvation. Jesus says, actually, they're going to be separated in time. One at my first coming, one at my second. So so at the deepest level, John's doubts come because he has, to put it really bluntly, misinterpreted God's word at a certain level. He thinks God has promised something that actually has yet to turn up. He thinks the Messiah well, should be doing things that Jesus doesn't seem to be doing, and therefore something's gone wrong. But why does he think that? He thinks that because he hasn't fully understood Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. He thought God had promised to do something when actually God hadn't. In John's case, he'd got the timescale wrong. But the principle, I think, is, a, is a, an important one. So often we question God and we doubt God because he hasn't delivered on something we think he ought to have delivered on. Well, actually, it turns out he never promised that in the first place. And you might have heard George Whitfield, the, the great evangelist in the 18th century, uh, who, along with John Wesley, did a t- tremendous evangelistic work, both in here and, and in the, the USA. 
Uh, he, he eventually married a bit later in life, uh, and they, the couple really struggled to have children. Eventually, they had one son, one little boy. And uh, this little boy, John, became ill. Uh, and George Whitfield was convinced that, that God had promised that this boy would get better from his illness. But after three or four months, the boy died. Uh, and Whitfield was destroyed. He just couldn't do anything for months. Now, what was his problem? His problem wasn't that he was destroyed because he lost a child. That would destroy any of us. Okay, the, the problem wasn't Whitfield's grief. Of course he was knocked off balance by that. But, but his problem was he believed that God had made a promise that God had never made. There is simply no promise in Scripture that God will, well, keep all our children safe in that case. There is no promise from Jesus that now your marriage will flourish. There is no promise from Jesus now that your health will always be sound. There is no promise from Jesus now that your job will be satisfying and enriching, or even that you'll always have a job. There are no promises for now that you won't at times weep deeply. That at times you won't feel abandoned and alone. But there are promises from Jesus that those things will cease when he comes back. So often our doubts, our questions, our, our challenges, we might even say to God, come. But because we think he's failed to turn up. We think he's failed to deliver for us. And actually, he's never promised to do so in the first place. Can I say also, if you, if you, maybe you're not a Christian, you, you've got questions about the Christian faith. This is, this is often, I think, one of the, the issues people have when they, they, they're trying to work out, is there a God and is Jesus God and is Christianity true? We, we apply the wrong tests. So, so we say, well, look, I, I believe in God if he, if he ended all the suffering in the world. Or I'd believe in God if, if he just made himself more obvious, you know, did something in the sky, or you know, if he's this all-powerful creator, why can't I see miracles? Then I'd believe in God. We set the tests, and then when he fails, fails to meet our criteria, we say, well, he, he can't exist. But, but why should God fit into our preconceived questions? What if God has got a reason for not ending all the suffering in the world that we just don't understand? To say that I won't believe because he hasn't met the particular tests that I've set, frankly, it doesn't make any sense. Someone came in this morning and said, you know, new person at Christ Church, they walked in and they said, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm John and I'm actually a, a basketball star. Okay, I'm huge in the NBA in America, okay, t- top athlete. And we, none of us ever heard of us because no one sensible follows basketball. And we want to work out, you know, is he really an NBA star? What would you say to him? Well, you wouldn't say to him, say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll believe you're a pro basketball player if you can tell me your times tables in French. What's that got to do anything? I believe you're a pro basketball player. Okay, if you can tell me the capital of Madagascar. You're saying tests have got nothing to do with it. I believe you're a pro basketball player, frankly, if you can, you know, sink a few hoops or jump six foot in the air or whatever it is basketball players do. But when we come to, to question God, we mustn't come and say, look, I will believe in you if you fit my criteria but I won't until that happens. And that's what the people at the end of our passage do. Look down at uh, at verse um, 16. Jesus looks at the generation around him and says, what should I say about you guys? You're like children. 
you're just never happy. So, so the little sort of parable there in verse 17, one group are playing the flute and saying, oh, let's play weddings, okay? Let's do, you know, children, children sometimes like pretending to, to be getting married. That's what they're doing here. You know, we're playing the fruit. Let's dance and have a celebration. And, and, and then, no, let's not do that. And so the children change tack and say, okay, we'll, we'll sing a dirge, okay? Let's play funerals instead. I'm not sure children really play funerals very often, do they? But we'll, we'll sing a sad song and we'll, we'll mourn. And the, the kids go, oh, no, we're not doing that either. Just never happy. And Jesus says, that, that's what this generation is like, responding to, to, to God's word. So John comes, the, the, announce, the, the prophet, the announcer of Jesus. He comes in verse 18, he neither eats nor drinks. Now, that's not literal. He does eat and drink. You know, he's not saying absolutely no food or drink. But he didn't, he didn't go to parties and feasts. John had a very odd diet, a very simplistic life. And how do people respond? Oh, he's got a demon. What a weirdo. He's way too holy, way too strict. And so then the Son of Man comes, verse 19, that's Jesus. And Jesus is always eating and drinking. Uh, he's often in the Gospels at someone's house having dinner at parties. And what do they say? Oh, look at him, he's a drunkard hanging out. The kind of people Jesus hangs out with, there's no way he can be God in the flesh. No way he can be the Messiah if he hangs out with people like that. Just can't win, is what Jesus is saying. People will neither repent with John, nor rejoice with Jesus. John's too holy. Jesus isn't holy enough. The problem, in other words, is not with the messengers, John and Jesus, but, but with our hearts. We just won't have it. You might have, in the middle of the political turmoil at the moment, you might have seen some of the protests. Uh, people are walking around and occasionally you see signs, not my prime minister. Uh, you see it in America too, you know, not my president. Now, I'm making no political comment here whatsoever, but he is your prime minister. You might not like it. That's a whole different question. But putting a placard and saying he's not my prime minister doesn't stop the fact that the current prime minister is your prime minister. It doesn't stop the fact that Donald Trump is president of America. He is your president if you're American. Uh, Just because someone we don't like the way someone does something, doesn't mean they, they don't exist. Jesus, well, frankly, when he turns up on, on this, the stage of world history, is different to what people expected. And that is the reason so many rejected him. And that is the reason why even John doubts. So what should he do? What is Jesus' counsel? What do doubting disciples do? Well, Jesus answers with Scripture, doesn't he? We've seen that already. He goes to Isaiah. He doesn't try and find some other way of convincing John. He doesn't miraculously make a meal appear in John's cell. He doesn't send Gabriel to fly through the window and say, don't worry, Jesus is who you thought he was. Nor does he solve John's problems. He doesn't go and break John free. The Isaiah 61 passage says that when the Messiah comes, he'll set the prisoners free. So you can see why John is kind of like... But Jesus doesn't do that. All he does is he sends back God's word. And in fact, that's what he is really about in verses 7 through 14 as well. He sends the, the, the word of God, the Isaiah references back to, to John. And then in case people are, are then saying, well, John, oh, he's blown it, hasn't he? In verses 7 through, through 14, 15, sorry, Jesus defends John. It defends John as a true prophet. John wasn't a, a reed shaken by the wind. He wasn't somebody who just sort of flops back and forward. He's not weak-willed. That's not the problem. 
when they went out to see John in the wilderness, was he a man dressed in soft clothing? I think Jesus is saying he wasn't just doing it for money. And now when things haven't turned out, he's disappointed. No, if you want to go and see people who are just in it for the money, go to the palaces. No, when you go and hear John, you do hear a prophet, verse 9. And more than a prophet. John is more than a prophet because not only does he preach God's word, but God's word speaks about John. The quote there in verse 10 is from the book of Malachi, where God says, before I come, before I, the Lord, come to earth, I will send a messenger ahead of me. And Jesus is saying that that is John. In fact, later in Malachi, if we looked up at Malachi 4, we'd see that, that, that God says this messenger who's to come is he's like another Elijah. That's why Jesus says that in, in verse 14 that, that John is Elijah. He's not literally Elijah. But like Elijah, he's announcing the Messiah is coming. Uh, John dresses like Elijah, eats like Elijah. Uh, John is greater than a prophet, more than a prophet, because he not only speaks God's word, but God's word speaks about him. In fact, in verse 11, he is the greatest man to have lived until that moment. Do you see verse 11? I tell you, among those born of women, there have arisen none greater than John the Baptist. At least until that moment, whatever year it was, 32 AD or whatever we are, no one greater than John had ever lived. John is greater than David, greater than Noah, greater than Moses, greater than Solomon, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than Daniel. But John is a huge figure, says Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus talking about how great John is? I think he's just making the same point as he made earlier with the Isaiah references. If you want to know who I am, if you, if you want if you want your faith to grow, if you want to be convinced that I am the Messiah, you must listen to God's word, both from the Old Testament as Isaiah spoke it and as John preached it. Doubts diminish as we feed on God's word. If we begin to doubt God's word, well, our doubts grow. If we begin to ignore God's word, our doubts are going to grow. And there is no other way of being persuaded of the truth of the gospel than by the scriptures. Now Paul says later in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing the word. That's why at Christchurch we, we try and have the Bible at the centre of absolutely everything, even though it can look unimpressive. If you said to people, well, on Sunday morning, what are you doing? Well, as we left this morning, our, our friends were going, our next-door neighbours were going off to Flamingoland, okay? which, you know, doesn't play my vote, but, you know, the kids are excited about it. What are you doing? So we're going to, going to church. And you can see the little girls who live next door. Like, I'll take Flamingoland. <laughs> and if we'd explain what happens at church, oh, you know, you know if Charlotte had said, oh, Daddy's going to stand up and talk at us for 30 minutes, and the kids would have been out of there. It doesn't look impressive, does it? But actually, it's as we study God's word, that faith grows. That the, the method of strengthening our faith is like the Messiah who gives us faith. Neither look impressive to earthly eyes, but behind the scenes, it's how God works. And nothing else will work. Nothing else will work. It doesn't matter how much of an atmosphere we try to create at church. You know, turn the lights down, the smoke machine up. Nothing will grow faith other than feeding on God's word. 
So are you feeding? Are you feeding your faith? I imagine you were to get ill and go to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I've got the cure. And he gives you a little, a bottle of medicine. Okay, take this medicine and it will make you better. And he said, well, how often am I to take it? Take as much as you want. The more you take, the better you'll get. Or your friend comes to see you in a couple of days' time. Oh, here you've got this, this potion, this, this medicine. It'll make you better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How often do you take it? Well, as often as I want. Oh, great. How often have you had it? Well, I haven't started it yet. What? Your children were ill. So you take them to the doctor and the doctor says, give them the medicine. Just give them the medicine. A week later, have you given the medicine to your children? I think I gave them some last Tuesday. Pretty sure someone else gave them some at, at church. You'd feed all the time, wouldn't you? Scripture is the food, that the medicine for our souls. And it's so easy to get blasé about it. Uh, to not hold the Bible in the esteem we ought to. To not realise how vital it is for our spiritual health. Because as we feed, and as our faith grows, and as our doubts diminish, the result is there in verse 11, in, in perhaps the most extraordinary verse in the passage. You see how John, in verse 11, the first half, is described as greater than anyone else who's come so far, greatest figure. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Anyone in the kingdom of heaven is someone who's in the era of Christ, essentially. So if you're a Christian, you are greater than John the Baptist, says John. Now, how? Okay, I imagine you didn't stand up this morning and look in the mirror and think, do you know what? I'm greater than John the Baptist. And actually, John the Baptist is greater than David and Moses and Elijah. I'm greater than Elijah. I'm greater than Moses. But you are. Is this what you saying? How is it, if you're a Christian, you are greater than Solomon, greater than Abraham? Clearly, you're not a greater king than David or a greater wise man than Solomon, a greater leader of God's people than Moses. No. What is it that made John greater? Well, what made John greater was that he was the messenger just before Jesus. Everyone else pointed forward to Jesus, but John literally was able to point at Jesus and say, look, this is the Lamb of God. John was the the chosen one to be the, the climax of all the prophecy of the Old Testament. He was the one who could most clearly tell people that Jesus was the Messiah because he could literally stand next to him and say, that is the Lamb of God. It's John's role as a messenger that makes him great. That's the kind of greatness that Jesus is talking about here. The ability to, to know and point clearly to Jesus. And that is how you and I are greater than even John the Baptist. Because we are more able to point clearly and to know clearly who Jesus is. Why? Because we live later. We've seen the rest of the gospel story. We're only at Matthew 11 now, but we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus lays down his life and rises again on the third day. We live after Jesus poured out his spirit at Pentecost. And so we are more able, even than John the Baptist, to show people that Jesus is the Christ. More able than someone who was able to point and say that is the Christ. Why? Because we have God's word. We have more revelation. That The Bible both calms our doubts and is ultimately the only tool that will bring other people to know that Jesus is God. It is medicine both for the Christian and the non-Christian. And so, see the flow of the passage? John starts worried, doubting. But, but worry is met by God's word, which is meant to slowly quell our fears and doubts. 
and God's word turns us into witnesses. That's the pattern, worry to the word to witness. And that's what we want to be as a church, so full of God's word, so fed on God's word that we become witnesses to those around us. But there is no other plan. There's no other medicine, no other food. This alone. And so as we begin a new year at church, new academic year, there's lots of things to pray with, new ventures starting. And, but the real thing to be praying for is that as individuals, as families, as a congregation, our faith grows, our doubts diminish as we feed. Come to church to feed. As the Bible is read, eat, <laughs> taste it, long for it, hunger for it, and pray that God then uses that to, to send you back out into the world as a witness so more and more people might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are prone to wander, that for all sorts of reasons uh, we doubt your word. And we praise you for this example of John and the relief it is to know that even true disciples doubt. But we do pray that you'd feed us more and more with the scriptures, uh, that we trust they are the very words of God. Father, give us a, an appetite to taste that they are sweeter than honey, that they see that they are more valuable than gold. And make us, we pray, as individuals and as a church, those who want to point people like John the Baptist to Christ as Messiah. Through us, we pray, you'd bring many into God's kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.